We're doing today biblical prayer. I want to show a couple of images up behind me. There's one and then two. I could have shown several. I just chose these particular two. Now, if you're a kid today and you get shown pictures like this and you don't know who they are, you might think along the lines of the way a lot of kids think, because this is kind of a, an indoctrination that's been going on for a while. And kids, sometimes when they see pictures of old people, they just think, old people. That's what they think. <laughs> so the first one that popped up was Nancy Piercy. Her name's not up there. She just wrote a book that I've mentioned in here, The Toxic War on Masculinity. In the book, she mentions one of her, uh, I guess, mentors. And this particular mentor was Francis Schaeffer, because Nancy Piercy was an atheist. And she um, went back to Christianity and saw the evidence that was so powerful in apologetics, the arguments for Christianity, that she's now become someone who is in the forefront of uh, theology today, which is very special. The other picture is of Seth Wilson, who is a mentor of mine. It was only by the grace of God that I ever even knew who he was, much less got to study under him and consider him a mentor. Uh, there's been at least two books written about him or in honor of him, and he wrote several books, and his name is disappearing off the internet as we go on. As time goes on, he will be forgotten by the internet, because uh, he's a Christian and a very wise man who traveled all across the United States and around the world, uh, giving wisdom to others. What I would say, if, if you were to throw these pictures up for me and say, what do you think? I might say that these were sages or are sages. Here's what a sage is. Wise, especially as a result of great experience. <clears throat> so you, not knowing who they were, you might just think, old people. But these are sages. One was a sage, one is a sage. And there's a whole lot that I could mention. I mentioned Francis Schaeffer. He was a sage, wrote many books. Uh, he was uh, very close friends with C. Everett Koop, who was the Surgeon General who got the warning put on all cigarettes, if that means anything to you. But Francis Schaeffer influenced the world. So did Seth Wilson, and Nancy Piercy is doing that today. A sage is not necessarily a world influencer. Sometimes a sage is somebody you, you have in your family, like a grandfather who is a Christian, or a mother, or an aunt, or an uncle, a, a father, or a mother who is a Christian, if a person has been a Christian for a while, living it genuinely and biblically, they're more than likely a sage. In a church, we identify overseers, otherwise known as elders, as our leadership, part of the leadership team. They would be sages. And I say this up front because there's kids that are with us and Last week, there seemed to be this idea from some of the kids that were here that they kind of want to be a sage. And I highly recommend 
any kid that's in the room and you hear a preacher standing on the stage, and the preacher should be a sage. <laughs> and here's how you can really, really identify whether or not this person is a really good sage. Uh, is, and if they, what they say is sage advice, wise advice, if it aligns with Scripture. Anytime it doesn't align with Scripture, that is not sage advice. And there might be a sage who normally gives great sage advice, but if they deviate from Scripture... Just follow the scripture. That's the main thing. But if you're a kid and you would like to be one of those kinds of people that someday somebody's talking about and saying, you are my sage. You are a sage. I love your wisdom. I love learning from you. I'm glad you're my mentor. If you want to be a kid that grows up and you're somebody like that, you got to work at it. You have to do some things to, to get there. And one of those things, besides reading the Bible, that you have to do is pray. It's part of it. In the upper room, you see an image up behind me of this. In the upper room, this was on uh, Thursday before Jesus died. We, we spent a significant amount of time when we're going through the Gospel of John in the last sermon series talking about what happened in this room. This is where Jesus washed his disciples' feet. This is where he gave them very sage advice, a whole bunch of it, all put together just before he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane and is arrested and then goes through the death on the cross and the resurrection. It's It's amazing. But in this room, in the image you see that's a painting, Judas is already gone, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. But just remember that in this room, sage advice was given and sage advice was taken. One of those things we found was in John 15. We walked over it, uh, walked through it, and went over it. And you'll see an image up behind me that, that is a, a breakdown of John 15. I wanted to remind you of this because some kids missed it and some adults need to be reminded of it. And I'm still compelled to do something about this because out of the 46 top English translations in the world today, not one of them translates it literally. Not one. What you read there is that every branch that does not bear fruit he takes away or he cuts off, and it doesn't say that. The Greek does not say that. It says, "iro" is the Greek word, it says he lifts up, which is a very different connotation. So if he sees you as not being product productive as a Christian, you're trying, but you're, you're still connected to the vine, but you're not producing. He doesn't just say, I'm done with you, which is what 46 of the most popular English translations say. What he says is, what it says is, he lifts you up. That's completely different than what we read. So I wanted to make sure I remind the adults and that I emphasize to the kids, this is the God we serve. If he sees you failing, even though you're trying, he does not give up on you. He lifts you up so that you will succeed. Don't forget that. This is just one of the many things Jesus gave them as sage advice there in that upper room. And if you need this thing, I'll try to have some copies out in the lobby if, if we run out of them. I want to go back to that upper room image again and just try to place yourself there in that upper room. At the end of it all, in that upper room, 
after he gave all this sage advice, like, like it's, it's like what you would do. If you knew that you were dying and your family was coming to you and you've got these last words to say, you're going to make it count. You're not going to leave things left unsaid. And this is what Jesus is doing before he goes to the cross. And at the end of it all, in John chapter 17, verse 1, look at this. We'll read a little bit into it. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So he says a prayer at the end of all of his sage advice before they head to the Garden of Gethsemane. He says this prayer. And as he says this prayer, he says lots of things, but I want you to pay attention where it says in there that he lifts up his eyes to heaven. That's the same Greek word I just talked about where it says the Father, um, when, he, when you're not productive, he doesn't cut you off. That's the same word that they translate cut you off or takes away. It says he lifts up his eyes to heaven. That's what he's doing, lifting up his eyes to heaven. And he's talking to his Father in heaven. And how you can have eternal life is to know him. That's what he just says right here. It's a personal relationship with Jesus. I want to go back into John chapter 17 in just a moment, but I have something I want to talk to you about. First of all, I want to show you this. Some of you know what this is. Some of you don't. This is what those who would call themselves Calvinists or those who believe in Calvinism um, would, would say. This is, this is their tenets of, of Calvinism. Not a man, I had a man stop by and see me, oh, probably March of this year. He stopped by and talked to me and said, basically, he just assumed that all Christians are Calvinists. That's what he was telling me. Goes, yeah, well, all Christians are Calvinists. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, every, all Christians. If you're not Calvinist, you're not a Christian. And that's what he believed. He just thought everybody's a Calvinist. What is it? Well, it's these five things. I don't have time to go over all of them. I wish I did. But this came from John Calvin. He's a reformer. You'll see his name come up on the other side. John Calvin uh, was one of the reformers. Him and Martin Luther, both of which I would say were sages. But both of them, both of them came up against the Catholic Church at the time, and I have nothing against the Catholic Church. I'm just giving you history. But the Catholic Church at the time was telling people that you could do these things, these crazy things, like you could put money in the offering plate at church and, and buy the souls of your loved ones out of hell, purgatory is what they say, so that they can go to heaven now. You just give more money and you can get people out of hell. Really? They were doing this kind of this stupid stuff. And all kinds of crazy stuff was going on. Martin Luther wrote 95 of them down as unbiblical and put it out, and the whole world saw it. John Calvin did things a little differently, but he also came up against this, the Catholic teaching. They were, they were so legalistic. And they were basically telling everybody, you can do these works to get to heaven, and you can't. 
And so they, they kind of swung the pendulum the other way and came up with, Martin Luther came up with this teaching that there is nothing you can do, nothing whatsoever that, that helps you with your salvation. John Calvin did kind of the same thing and basically nothing. It's just God does it all you, and, and almost eliminated Christian living. You don't have to live for him. So it came across. That's not what they meant. They were very godly men and sages. I believe that I'll see them in heaven. John Calvin got so dogmatic that he actually supported the killing of a woman who disagreed with him. So we've got to be real careful with who we identify as sages. Always double-check with Scripture. This Calvinism thing, I want to talk about the perseverance of the saints, the last one up here. It's otherwise known as once saved, always saved. Have you heard of this? There's a lot of people that believe this is the way it is. I mean, we just got done reading a, uh, some words to some lyrics of a song that refers to a particular Scripture that says, no one can snatch you out of the hand of God. That's true. But the question is, can you walk away? And John Calvin's teaching was, no one can walk away. No. Once you are a Christian, nobody walks away. Nobody can. It's not allowed. It doesn't happen. But you, you have people in your family. You have friends. You have, you have coworkers. You have people you've talked to that were dedicated Christians and have walked away. And so here's that they come up with another thing. Oh, well, they never knew in the first place. And I can show you a lot of Scripture that undoes that theology, but I want to at least tell you that this theory of one saved, always saved is wrong. Yeah. And I'll show you in John chapter 17, verse 12, as Jesus continues to pray, this is a very, very personal part of his prayer. Look at this. He's talking to his father. In heaven, he says, while I was with them, talking about his 12 disciples, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction. That scripture might be fulfilled. He was saved, then he was lost. Jesus tried to keep them all saved, but a lost one, Father. To fulfill Scripture. And if you go back and look at the Scripture that talks about it, it's, it mentions he was my friend. Jesus was very close to Judas. That's why I let him handle the money. So it is false. That's just one of many passages. But I wanted to show you in the prayer, uh, truth of God's Word. Now I want to take you to some other places. First I want to take you to Mark chapter 9. We've already looked in John chapter 17, a little bit of Jesus praying. I want to look in John chapter, or Mark chapter 9, starting with verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher... I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. It means he can't talk because his spirit is taken over. Verse 18, and whenever it seizes him, he goes into seizures, 
It throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So ask your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. So understand the picture. So this demon, this spirit that's in his son, keeps him from being able to talk. And when it causes seizures, what those seizures look like is he grinds his teeth like a real seizure and becomes rigid like a real seizure. And he foams, he throws him down, and he foams at his mouth. Maybe you've seen this when someone has a seizure. That's, that's what it looks like. But maybe you, like me, have been a part of, um, maybe regularly attended, like I did, a church where this happens every time they gather. There are people that fall on the ground, become rigid, foam at the mouth, some of them, and convulse. And they don't say it's a demon. They say it's the Holy Spirit. But there is nowhere in Scripture you find anyone anywhere having a seizure in the name of the Spirit. It doesn't happen in Scripture anywhere. The only Spirit ever attached to falling on the ground, wallowing around, convulsing, foaming at the mouth, is demon possession. I'm I'm just showing you the Scripture. It might bother you because you might have loved ones that think this is spirituality. What happens is people think this is what you're supposed to do because they see it happen. And then experts, somebody like me, will stand on the stage and say, that's the Holy Spirit. But my Bible and your Bible says something very different. But his disciples were not able to cast out this demon. This is a strong demon. Couldn't cast out. They tried. And so Jesus answers them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. So what the father said happened, happened right when the boy saw Jesus. It happened. He's foaming at the mouth. He he fell on the ground. He's convulsing on the ground. Oh, it's happening. There's one of these seizures right now, right in front of Jesus. And something about the presence of Jesus made the demon cause the boy to do this. Because Jesus is holy. Yet some people will say, well, that's, this, that's the Holy Spirit. Oh, my goodness, that's the Holy Spirit. Hmm? It's not what was happening. How do you know the difference? Well, anytime somebody says this is the Holy Spirit, check it with Scripture. Look at what the Bible says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. Beloved, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Even in New Testament times, If you want to test the spirits, then check it with Scripture. If Scripture, if the only time you ever see in Scripture a spirit doing something that involves causing someone to fall on the ground, have seizures, foam at the mouth, and convulse, well, the only time it mentions anything like that, it's talking about demon possession. So it's pretty easy. If somebody says that's the Holy Spirit, the Bible says, um, excuse me, 
Something else is happening here. <clears throat> Some people will argue that there is this thing called slain in the Spirit. Have you heard about this? I've talked about it before. Slain in the Spirit, they use John chapter 18, verse 6. If you remember what happened is when they came to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus says, whom do you seek? He's boldly saying that. And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I'm he. And as soon as he says that, people fall to the ground that are there to arrest him. They have weapons in their hands. They are ready to arrest him. They came in a crowd to do this. And when he says, I am he, it's like a bubble just goes, Whoa, and they all just fall to the ground. And there are, there are many churches that teach, that's slain in the spirit. The problem with that theory is those people got back up off the ground and arrested Jesus. There is no indication that they made a commitment to him. Then they killed him. If that's slain in the spirit, I don't want it. I want to be on Jesus' side, not on the opposite side. Once again, I will make it clear to you, this slain in the spirit idea is wrong. Based on scripture. Let's look further in Mark chapter 9. There's so much cool in here. Verse 17 picks up where we were. And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. <clears throat> oh, hold on. I don't want to do that. We've already done that. I want to go further. We're going to skip a few slides. Okay, here we go. Go down to verse 21. Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can... All things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. So he believes, but he's like saying, prove me to be right, and I want to believe in you more. Verse 25, and Jesus saw that the, a crowd had come running together. When he saw the crowd had come running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit. I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. Let's pay careful attention. We're getting to the really good part. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but, wait, it's not up behind me. I left the word out. I wanted you to see. It's right. Look, the next slide you'll see. Prayer. It can only come out by prayer. Do you, so you, hear, you see that? Jesus is asked, how did you do this? We tried and it didn't work. How did you do this? 
And he goes, you want to know the secret? Prayer. That's the big secret. When you got a big, bad demon that won't come out and nobody can deal with it, the disciples who have all this power, ability to do miracles, they could not cast the demon out. And Jesus said, you want to know the secret? Pray. Think about that. If you're going through struggles in life and you just can't seem to get past it, it seems like it's going to take a divine miracle. Maybe you could have somebody who could perform miracles, but even that's not good enough. The solution is pray. That's the big thing. You want to know what you could do, the big thing to really make things happen? Pray. It seems so simple. That's the answer. So prayer is the answer, but I want you to notice there's a little note up here. See that little E? I just actually copied and pasted it just like that. I wanted you to pay attention to that because sometimes when the preacher asks the question, you know, what's the big secret in this context? And I leave the word out. Somebody might say, what's, doesn't it say prayer and fasting? Well, it does in some tra translations. Why? Well, let me help you. Some manuscripts add fasting. That's the note that came in the English Standard Version. Why does it say some manuscripts add? Because after doing textual criticism, textual criticism is there are experts. They have whole, there's lots of people that multiple doctor's degrees that their field of expertise is in textual criticism. They study the manuscripts that we use to compile the Bible, all the different little fragments and then whole sections of Scripture that have been preserved. And they've determined that originally, in the original manuscript in Mark chapter 9, did not have prayer and fasting, but that it was added later. And textual critics, those that don't believe in the inspiration of Scripture, they universally believe that Mark is the gospel that the other gospels copied from to come up with theirs. Well, the reality is God inspired people to write the Bible, so they didn't copy off of Mark. But it does appear that someone might have copied off of an old manuscript that some scribe had added and fasting in Mark and then put it in Matthew. I'll give you another note. Coincidentally, it's also an E in Matthew chapter 17, verse 21. There's an E footnote, and it says that some manuscripts add the verse 21. So if you go to Matthew chapter 17, you will, and if you try to read verse 21, some of your Bibles won't have that verse. Some will. Because after they'd already given it chapters and verses, then they discovered more ancient manuscripts that were authentic, and they did not have verse 21 there. So actually, there is no original manuscript anywhere. There is no textual evidence that prayer and fasting was what Jesus said. Fasting is good, but what he said, according to the historical record, is pray. That's the big answer. Prayer. Now, I want to show you something that I think is, uh, I'm going to give you some things in a hodgepodge, but first I'm going to show you a timeline. Um, I want to talk about the, uh, the timeline in a minute, but right here, prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane is what happens when Jesus, right after he says, whom do you seek? Uh, and they said, Jesus of Nazareth, I am he. And they fall to the ground and they get up and arrest him. And they take him. Remember that whole scene there where Malchus's ear gets cut off by Peter, the apostle who was one of the three that were carrying swords. 
In the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, it's a very, very special thing that happens. In that prayer, uh, it is in the Synoptic Gospels, and you'll see a, a part of this uh, come up behind me. The Synoptic Gospels are the three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They wrote more about what Jesus said than what he did. And it's in Matthew 26, Mark 14, and Luke 22. All three of the Synoptic Gospels have the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. And one of the things we learn from the doctor, Luke, the doctor, he mentions that Jesus had a condition. You'll see a couple of things that we learn from all the synoptics on this next little bullet that'll come up. Uh, Hematohydrosis is a rare condition where someone is so extremely stressed. In fact, um, Van Gogh wrote about a military soldier who was about to go into battle and was seen sweating blood. It's coming out of his pores. And there are other accounts. One of those accounts is actually in Luke's gospel of Jesus who's praying to his father. He knows he's about to die and take on all the things that we do wrong, all the sins. He takes on our sins. He is going to die so that we can spend eternity in heaven with him. And he knows he's going to take all this on, all the things I've done wrong and will do wrong, all the things you have done wrong and will do wrong. Everybody's. He takes it all on, and that's heavy. And before he does this, he's praying to God, because this is hard, what he's got to do. And he begins to sweat blood. That's a very stressed individual. And as he's praying, what is he, as he's so stressed, in, in all three of the Synoptic Gospels, he says three times, God, Father, please, if this doesn't have to happen, make something else happen. He says it this way, may this cup pass from me. And then after he says that, he says, but if you want me to do this, I'll do it. He says, your will be done. Three times. Not my will. I'd like this cup to pass, but your will be done. I have had people get on to me when I've said a prayer. Uh, I've had people that I went through, as I've told you, I was uh, totally and permanently disabled for a couple of years. And I had people come to me and pray for me and pray for healing. And I, I would join in the prayer with them. And I'd say, yes, Lord, if it is your will to heal me, please heal me. And here I am. So through the answer to the, those prayers were answered through very creative uh, medical technology. They experimented on me and it worked and I'm very thankful, but it's by the prayers that, that all that came to fruition. But I got in trouble with people when I would say, okay, Lord, if it's your will that I be healed, they would say, don't ever do that. You don't have faith. If you say your will be done, then you, you don't have faith. That's, that's bad, 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 bad to say your will be done. In all three synoptics, Jesus prayed in a very stressful moment in an intimate conversation with his father. Not my will, but your will. I think I'm going to go with Jesus on this, and I'm going to pray for God's will, because I think his will is always better than mine. Just wanted to clue you in on that. Now I want to look at the timeline. The transfiguration. I don't have time to go over that. I wish I did, but... 
The transfiguration is a special thing, and it is in all, there's a plus symbol up here behind me, because it's in all three synoptics. The really weird thing is, John, the writer of the Gospel of John, was there. One of the few of the disciples that witnessed it, he was there. But God did not inspire him to write about it, because he wrote more about what Jesus said than what he did. But the synoptics have the transfiguration in it. Luke is the one that does not have, in our story I just read to you out of Mark, he's the only of the three synoptics that does not have the only way to take care of this big bad demon is prayer, only by prayer. So Matthew and Mark have it, but not Luke. Mark does mention, or I'm sorry, Matthew and Luke mention how to pray. So Luke and Matthew do mention how to pray. But I want to specifically talk to you about Luke chapter 11. It's fascinating. We will not go over it. We're going to look at Matthew's account. The reason why I wanted to do this is because after the transfiguration, then what we have is Luke doesn't have it. But then we have this grand thing where a boy that's got a demon, that's a really big, bad demon, and after it's all taken care of, Jesus says, the only way to do that is by prayer. reason why y'all couldn't do it, because y'all didn't pray. If you pray, then it works. So only by prayer is in Matthew and Mark. And the reason why I put all this up here is because I wanted you to see the timeline, because when Luke 11 hits, what Luke says after the transfiguration is he says, one of the disciples came up to Jesus. Now, it appears that because Luke was the masterful one who put everything in order, he's the one that says at the beginning, I made sure and double-checked and made sure everything was in order. So if you go to any of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, Synoptics, or John, and you want to find out how things appeared in a timeline, Go with Luke. He's the one that only he's the only one that makes a claim. These are all in order. <clears throat> and the reason why I bring that to your attention is because we're going to look at Matthew in just a minute. And Matthew puts part of this in the Sermon on the Mount, and it is quite possible that it actually happened in the way Luke records things after the Transfiguration. And that's where Mark has it as well. So, I tell you all this because at what Luke does have, he doesn't have that thing about only by prayer, but what he does say is, after Jesus prayed, oh, that would be the one, because it's right after the transfiguration and just before Mark's account of how to pray. One of the disciples says to Jesus, teach us how to pray like John the Baptist taught his disciples. So, so what seems to be, since we follow Luke's timeline of events, even though he doesn't have the model prayer like Matthew and Mark do, I'm sorry, he doesn't have the um, he doesn't have the trend, he doesn't have the only by prayer piece, the boy demon being cast out. It appears that right after Jesus goes, oh, the only way you can do this, you ready for the answer? Prayer. And then one of the disciples says, teach us 
how to pray like John the Baptist taught his disciples. So in other words, right after this big grand event, his, one of his disciples speaks on behalf of all the others. Would you please teach us this? We want to know how to pray like that. So we can do big bad stuff for the kingdom of God. We want to, we want to learn. Now, let's go ahead and look at the pattern. So I want to back up a little bit because in last week we talked about giving and you'll remember the way Jesus wrapped it up was like this. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 3 and 4. But when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. So we're not supposed to give to the needy except in secret. Then we go with verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, you have received, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Some will read this and they'll say, there should never be public prayer then. You have to always go do it privately. Don't ever do it publicly. The problem with that is we just went through some prayers of Jesus that he did in front of other people. Remember, he was in the upper room. And as he wrapped everything up with his sage advice, he began praying. And even prayed for Judas who had left. The one that he lost. Not only that, what he's about to do in Matthew and what he also did in Mark is he's going to pray in front of his disciples out loud for all of them to be able to learn the model prayer. So he's going to pay, pray publicly. But the point is, when you pray, you're not supposed to do it to impress people. Let me say that again. When you pray, you're not supposed to do it to impress people. I said it twice on purpose because Jesus started with, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. They're fake. That's what that means. They wear masks. They pretend to be someone they're not. Don't pray to impress people. Three times now I've said that. It needs to be said. <clears throat> I had a, a very kind sister in the faith, an older lady who was a sage. As a youth minister, it was very special to me. This passage was very special. Any words of Jesus, any words in the Bible are special to me. And as a youth minister, it was very special. When Jesus taught me how to pray, I wanted to do it His way. So when I would pray, I would try not to pray to impress people. So when I would pray, I would just simply talk to God in front of people if I'm praying for a group. And this lady thought that I didn't know how to pray because, you know, she was used to when people prayed, they said the these and the thous, and they had a long prayer, you know. That's how you're supposed to do it. Some of you in this room have been shocked when I've been asked to pray over a meal, and all I do is pray over the meal. Because here's what is typically expected. I mean, you're a preacher. You, you can pray over the meal. So everybody's going to bow their heads, close their eyes. And in their own minds, many of them think when they don't know me, uh, they'll be thinking, okay, here we go. 
sermon. In the middle of a prayer, it's going to be a long sermon. We're going to pray for everything, and he might even forget to pray for the food. That's what happens sometimes, because people think they have to impress everybody. If somebody's ever asked you to pray out loud the first time, one of your thoughts are, oh, I hope I don't mess it up. For who? You're just talking to God. Who are you trying to impress? You don't have to impress people. I had this sister in the faith that thought I didn't know how to pray because I didn't use the these and the thous, and I didn't do long prayers to be heard by people. I've done long prayers. I've had two-hour prayers with other people. I know how to do long prayers, but I don't do it just to have long prayers. In fact, Jesus says very clear, they think they're going to be heard for their many words. They, they think they're impressing people because of their many words. And he says they've received their reward in full, which means they impress people. <laughs> people think, oh boy, that person knows how to pray. Here's, let, me, let me help you. I'm going to help every adult in the room who's gotten trapped in that, who think when you pray out loud, you've got to impress people. That's the whole thing. You got to say, you got to articulate, you got to use these and thou's like in the King James Bible. You know, you got you to impress people. If you get, if you've gotten trapped into that, let me help you out. Have you ever heard a small child pray? They, they, they don't care if they don't say their words right. They don't care if you're impressed. You know what they think about? There's a God and he hears me. And if I ask him, he might answer me. So I'm going to ask. That's what little kids think. And you listen to their prayers. And if you've ever heard a little kid pray, when you're done listening, it's like, oh my goodness, I need to learn to pray again. That's what you think, you know? The kids, the kids are just like totally transparent with God. I mean, you could be the grandparent and you've got your, chi- your grandchild right there and the, and the grandchild might just say something as transparent as, Lord, please help my grandparent who's got a temper problem. They might do that because they think God's listening. Isn't that how we're supposed to pray? So let's push that idea aside that the hypocrites have given us. We don't have to pray to impress people. If you pray to impress people, you'll get your reward. You'll impress them. No, you'll, you, you might even write it all out so you get it just right. Oh, and people will be impressed. And after church, they might go, oh, that was such a beautiful prayer. You, you might get that. That's all you get. That's what Jesus said. They've re- received their reward in full. That's all they're going to get. They, they want to impress people? Fine. They get to impress people. But that's it. Which means... Your prayers are not effective. In fact, look at this detail he gives us. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. Ouch. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So you don't have to try to be impressive while you ask. Just ask. In fact, if you read the uh, synoptic accounts of this prayer, what you'll discover is a very fascinating thing. I think it's Luke's, I think Luke's the one that has it. Um, he tells this story, you should read it because it's kind of cool. 
So what if you get up at midnight and bang on your friend's door? Hey, uh, I got company that just showed up. Can I borrow some food? And <laughs> and you're going to be yelling back, leave me alone, the kids are in bed, I'm not opening the door for you. And he goes on to paint a picture that God will answer your prayer. He's not like that. But you have to, if, if, if you get up and help him, it's not because it's your friend, it's because he's tenacious and he actually came to your house and he's bugging you and the audacity of it Midnight, while your kids are asleep, you stop by to ask me for food for your friend. Okay, I'll take care of you. It's a, it's a cool, it's cool thing that he attaches to this that we don't have in Matthew. Then Jesus, after he talks about don't be trying to impress people, he then says, pray like this. Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. Our Father in heaven... Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So he starts with honoring God. He starts with praising God. And God, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Wait a minute, wait a minute. I've had people tell me, don't ever pray for the will of God. And Jesus right here says, when you pray, pray like this. And he prayed for the will of God. I think I'm going to stick with that. I will pray for the will of God. Verse 11 continues in his model prayer. This is called the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So take care of our provisions, God, please, because anything you have is a provision of God. You can only have anything, even your income, your job, anything, any possession. It's all by the grace of God that you have it. So why not give him credit and ask him to continue to provide for you? But notice the part where he says, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. It's an interesting little twist that he's got going on there. Because we are taught in other places very clearly um, how important it is that we have to forgive others. In fact, we're taught here in this passage, after the prayer, Jesus adds a little caveat. He says in verse 14 and also verse 15, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And some people read this and they think, I must forgive everyone for everything, even if they don't want to be forgiven, because I want to be forgiven by God. And it's good to forgive others who want to be forgiven. Just so you know, if you don't want to be forgiven by God, you're not going to be. It's the way it works. Read your Bibles. But it's good to be gracious with people. You should not expect God to forgive you if you're not willing to forgive others because there's only one perfect person that ever walked this planet who has a right to say, I never did anything wrong, so I don't have to forgive anyone. But guess what? He went all the way to the cross and he forgave us. There's only one person who can hold it against us and say, I'm not forgiving you. But when we want to be forgiven, he will forgive us. We have to repent. That always proceeds... Forgiveness. 
But so what if you have somebody that doesn't want to be forgiven? Do you still forgive them? That's a good question, isn't it? Well, it certainly helps our bitterness if we don't learn to forgive people. But don't forget, there's a difference between trust and forgiveness. They are two different things. You can forgive. Trust has to be earned. Okay, there's five biblical and practical prayer basics I want to wrap this up with. Five things you don't want to forget when you walk away from this today. And kids that are in the room or kids that are in the lobby or kids, whoever, that listen to this, however, don't forget, in case you forget, these are all on all of the most popular podcasts out there. You can always go back and listen again. Biblical and practical prayer basics. First of all, the main thing is do it. (laughs) That's what we learn in Luke's account of this prayer, this model prayer. We learn the main thing is do it. Remember the story I gave you? It's Jesus' story. I didn't make it up about about you going to your neighbor at midnight and saying, hello, I got uh, friends that stopped by. I need some food. I always find it interesting when you ask people to borrow food. Are you going to regurgitate it to give it back to me? What are you doing? Uh, That means you're going to replace the food you took is what it means. But the idea is be tenacious enough to go to God when you have a need. That's that's one of those problems. Here's what we, we do. I have a headache. You know why you have a headache, in case nobody's told you. Most of the time is because you don't drink enough water. That's the number one cause of people getting headaches. But anyway, so I have a headache. First thing, okay, I'm going to get some Tylenol, Excedrin, Ibuprofen, Aleve. I'm going to take something. How about this? Christians, I don't have anything against medicine. I think it's great. Would it hurt anything if you stopped for a minute and said, God, please help? Could you please, if it fits within your will, make this headache go away? And then take the medicine? Wouldn't it be better if our first step would be to pray before we take the next steps? But we don't do that very often. You know, so many times we get in an an interpersonal relationship problem and we just start trying to solve it or we complain to somebody about it. That doesn't solve it. We just spread gossip or whatever it is we do. How about we stop for a minute when something doesn't go right in a relationship, pause for a minute and pray. I mean, you don't want your your relationships to unravel. And when this starts to unravel, maybe it's an adult child that's deciding to push away. Maybe it's that teenager that's causing so much drama because they're good at it. Maybe it's a sister or a brother because somebody died and now you've got to determine who gets what and you're going to fight over it. Maybe it's somebody who betrayed a trust. How about before you take any action Otherwise, stop and pray. Just do it. That's the whole point of that story that Jesus told about going to the neighbor's house at midnight. Instead of just welcoming your guests and say, I don't have any food for you, I'm going to go get some food. Don't forget, you have to go to God. If you want good things to happen, you have to have the audacity to go to him and say, Lord, I'd like some good things to happen. You got to talk to him. Too many times, we don't do it. Do it. Second, it's not to impress others. We don't pray to impress others. It's not what we do. My family still asks me, because I'm the preacher, 
to do the Thanksgiving prayers every Thanksgiving. Wherever I am with whatever family I'm with, I do the Thanksgiving prayers. I'm the preacher. I should know how. And you would be shocked at how many people think I don't know how because all I do is pray for the food. It's the Thanksgiving prayer. Thank you, God, for the food and everything else. In Jesus' name, amen. And people are thinking, what? That was the shortest Thanksgiving prayer I've ever heard. I'm not trying to impress you. I'm just talking to God and thanking Him for His provisions. So, number three. I'm going to talk about this. I haven't brought it up yet. When do you pray? That's a good question. A lot of people think the best time to pray is at night before you go to bed. You know, I'm just going to say my prayers. That's great. Pray at night before you go to bed. A.M., P.M., whatever, and all in between. If you pray while you're driving down the roads, adults, don't close your eyes. It'll get you in trouble, and it's dangerous. But I would recommend pray in the mornings. First thing you do when you get up, pray. Maybe you need to fix your coffee first, but pray. Here's the way... Uh, some sages have talked about it. Sages, particularly Alexander Campbell and Thomas Campbell, they taught people on a regular basis, when you pray, the best time to pray is when you get up in the morning. Because when you listen to the orchestra that didn't tune their instruments beforehand, it's garbage. When you plow the field and look and see after you're done plowing, hey, did I make straight lines? They're not straight. You've got to set your goals and then aim for them. Then they'll be straight. You see, you tune the instruments before you play in the orchestra. You, 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 figure, you try to figure out where you're headed. It's, better, it's great at the end of the day say, God, how did I do? That's great. But it's better to also have a morning prayer that says, God, guide me. This is your day. And I want to be your servant. So why not start your day and set the tone for the day? This is your day, Lord. I highly recommend a.m. and p.m. and all in between. Pray whenever it needs to be done. Let me help you out here. Christians, even if you're not a Christian, you simply attend here and somebody hears, oh, you, you went to church Sunday? Yeah. What if they say, would you pray for me? Um, Got a situation. Here's what you do. You say, of course. And if you're close enough to them that they will allow you to put your hand on their shoulder, hold her hand, that's great. But you don't have to. You say, let's pray right now. And pray right then. You know, most of you know, I work in a prison. I worked in the most violent prison in our state for a while. And regularly, it shocked new people. But if a guy, if I'm walking by some guy who's in solitary confinement and he says to me, Preacher, would you pray for me? Yes, let's pray. And I pray. I'll tell you what that does is it makes the person next think, well, they believe in prayer. And the reality is, the most important thing that it does is, it's connecting you and God and this other person. And you're doing it. And if you stop in that moment and you actually pray with them, maybe, you're, what if you're on the phone? What if you're just driving down the road, you get it on hands-free, because that's the only way you should be doing it. As you're driving down the road, you're on the phone with somebody and somebody says, hey, I'm going through something. Would you pray for me? Do it. Yes, I'll pray for you right now. Keep watching the traffic, pay attention to what you're doing, but say a short prayer. What if they don't ask you for prayer? How about this? Would you mind if I pray for you? 
How about that? What if you're in church on a given Sunday morning and you're greeting people and somebody says to you, man, I got a situation, whatever it is. Would you mind if I pray for you? Right then and there. Do you believe in prayer or do you not? Well, then pray anytime. How about that? Fourth, always say your will be done. Always pray for the will of God. Why is anybody even hesitant about that? Why would anybody go, I don't know if I want to do that. Do you know better than God? I don't. His will is always better. So always pray for God's will. It's better anyway. You might think, oh my goodness, I want this job. Oh my goodness, I need this thing to happen. Whatever it is, always put your will be done. Because whatever, if this thing that you're praying for doesn't work out, his plan is always better. You'll figure that out later if you haven't yet. Fifth thing is this. Always pray in Jesus' name. John chapter 14, Jesus says, anything you ask in my name, I want to give it to you. Let's pray. God, thank you for listening to us when we come to you. Forgive us when we fail to talk to you. We know you love us. Sometimes, Lord, we just get too busy. We know that prayer works. In our foolishness, Lord, sometimes we, we don't act like it. But we want to do better. And we've looked at your word, Lord, and you've given us guidance. So help us do better. We want to please you with our prayers. Thank you for listening now. And God, as the person that's delivering the message right now, I'd like to ask you to reach down and grab a hold of anyone in this room who needs you to grab their attention. If there's anyone here this morning, Lord, that has, has had their mind somewhere else, if there's anyone here in this room this morning, Lord, that has been struggling with something they haven't brought before you, Lord, I lift that unspoken prayer up right now. And I ask that you would help them to throw off those things that are weighing them down to draw near to you. And I ask that you pull them tight, pull them close. God, I ask if there's anyone in this room that doesn't know your love, may they feel some of that right now. May we show them some of that. God, if there's anyone in this room who has been neglecting talking to you in their personal prayer lives, God, I ask that you would use today and even this moment as a strong reminder that you want to hear from them. I thank you in advance for this answered prayer. May your will be done. In Jesus' name, amen.